Wow, thank you, John and Stacy and James. We need to have one of those every week. If you don't walk out of here with anything else today, I want you to walk out of here knowing this. God does not need your money. We are to give, yes, and we'll get into that more. But you don't do God a favor by giving. He doesn't need your gift or mine. Again, we are told to give. We'll look at that more. But please, would you walk out of here today? Don't, don't think that God needs your money. Second thing I hope you walk out of here with is the assurance that God needs your money. Yeah, you're thinking, wait, didn't you just say? Okay, they're in, both are true in different senses. Again, we don't help God in any way by giving. However, God has chosen to operate this world through means, that is like instruments, specifically people and money. Or people and things, and then money just helps us buy things. When you go home today for lunch, you're not going to sit at your kitchen table and pray that God miraculously works on your behalf and zaps a meal down, cooked and ready for y'all to eat. You're not going to do that because you know that's not how God acts. You know He works, but He works in very different ways. Every morning you wake up and go to work, you do so because you know that's part of the process of how God is providing for you and your family. Again, you don't see the speco bill, for example, come in and say, God, move some electrons around on their server, make it look like we paid, and let's go, go on, and I, therefore I can spend my money in other ways. No, God's not going to move those electrons around. He's not going to give you a credit for something you don't pay for. God has instituted means for how he operates in this world. But yes, God operates in people's minds and hearts mysteriously. We don't see that. We often see the effects at a later point. But the primary way that God provides for any, any organization, any group, is by people and money. People sometimes complain, well, the church always talks about money. It's always asking about for money. Yes. I don't think we overdo it, but yes, churches ask for money. Why? It's a necessity. Smeco won't take any other thing for, for payment. They won't take your smile. They want real money. Same with everything else. When you go to the grocery store, you don't get to just walk out with stuff that you want. No, you have to pay for it. That's how God has set things up. He uses people and He uses money. That's why also the church is always looking for people. For people to help carry the load. For people to serve. It's because we never have enough. We never will have enough people to do everything. We will never have enough money to do as much as we would like, as much as we could, and yet, or so, therefore we ask that you give and 
according to how people give, that determines how much we can do. You might say, well, well, what about God's sovereignty? And if He wants something else to happen, won't He make it happen? He may raise up money through other people. He may raise up other laborers. And believe it or not, I don't understand it all, but I think sometimes God is disappointed by how much we labor and how much we give and the fact that so much more could be done, but He's not going to miraculously intervene and do it. So at least from our vantage point, it looks like it's left undone because we simply don't have enough resources for it. I was looking at the end of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus and the disciples had been ministering, looking around, they'd been healing people, uh, various things. Jesus reaches a conclusion. He says, guys, look out here. Harvest is so plentiful. We just don't have enough workers. So pray the Lord of the harvest to do what? To perform some miracle? To put the message in the clouds and in the stars? No. People pray the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into His harvest. God works through people. God works with money or things. And we just cannot change that. You go to McDonald's tomorrow, they want your money, right? They need people who are employees, people who are customers. And they want you to buy food. That's simply how the whole shebang works, whether for-profit or not for-profit. I want us to do one more thing today. I want us to, I need to give you some background before we actually look into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And see the map is up there. I'd like to turn your attention to a few of the things. In the lower right-hand corner, the southeast, you see Israel, uh, Jerusalem there at the Bottom, you go north, you hit Damascus, Syria. You go keep going north, Antioch and Tarsus. That big country there today is the nation of Turkey. Back then, it was called Asia Minor. Asia Minor, the people who inhabited it back then were not the Ottomans and Turks that occupied Turkey to today. Entirely different group of people. But Paul was from Asia Minor. Timothy was from Asia Minor. Paul's entire first missionary journey was throughout Asia Minor. In fact, he then got to a point, he was basically saying, Lord, what's next? And he tried to go, I think, north, that door shut. Tried to go east, that door shut. Tried to go south, that door shut. About that time, he had a dream of a man from Macedonia, which is where Philippi and Thessalonica are. Man from Macedonia said, Come on over here, Paul. We need to hear your message. So Paul took that as a hint from the Lord. He went, presented the gospel, and ultimately planted churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in a town not listed there, Berea. Now, that part, that's Greece. And that part of Greece, that northern part, is known as Macedonia. Southern part of Greece, where Corinth and Athens are, that was known at the time as Achaia. As we look in our scripture today, we're not going to see the word Achaia, but we will see the word Macedonia or Macedonians several times. So I wanted you to see where it's situated. 
it was by uh, land, because that's often how they traveled, by land for Paul to go, say from Corinth back to Jerusalem, was more than a thousand miles. Now a good, healthy person could probably travel 15 to 20 miles a day. You can only imagine how long it would take to make a trip like that. As we get into 2 Corinthians, Paul is actually in Asia Minor in Ephesus, and he's writing a letter to the people in the church of Corinth. The Grecians, the Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, they are Gentiles. The people who lived in Judea, Jerusalem, those are Jews. Even the ones who came to Christ are Christian Jews. If you know much about Gentiles and Jews, unfortunately, they don't get along really well. And unfortunately, 2,000 years later, the case is still the same. And it certainly should not be. Three things, or another important thing about Philippi and Thessalonica, they were undergoing a famine at this time. They had two major problems, a famine and persecution. There were Jewish people in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and some of those were converted to Christ, but not all. And so some of those who were not converted especially families of those who were converted, the ones not converted, even in the midst of a famine, were not willing to help their fellow family members, people they were related to. Why? Because the Jewish people considered Christianity a heresy. And why would they support someone who has turned heretic? Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea were undergoing a famine and undergoing persecution. By the way, around this same time, Rome was enduring two famines. But then if we go back to the east, Jerusalem, Judea was also undergoing a famine. That famine and its after effects lasted nearly 20 years. That was a long, hard problem to deal with. The Christians there also were ostracized and persecuted by the Jewish people, even by their own family and friends. Thirdly, one other thing that makes the Jerusalem issue even worse is they were under a very onerous, uh, heavy tax burden. Yeah, taxes are somewhat familiar to many of us this time of year. <clears throat> the entire Roman Empire was taxed by Rome, and so that was one tax that Everybody basically had to pay, and that was their only. When you come to Jerusalem, however, the Jerusalem leaders levied a separate tax in order to support the temple. So estimates are that the total tax burden on people was up to 40% at that time. Now again, without us thinking about it too much, when we had Social Security and state tax and federal tax and whatever else, ours may be about that high. But that wasn't an easy burden for them to, to handle. And so many of the people in Jerusalem, as well as many of the people in Macedonia, northern Greece, were, were living basically hand to mouth, day to day. And if you've ever lived like that, you know there's basically nothing else that, that you can focus on beyond survival. Okay, so that's what we're going to be looking at today because Paul is going to write a letter 
has written one letter to Corinth. What we're going to look at is the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. And here's what he's going to ask. He's going to ask the Corinthians who began to take up a collection a year earlier, he's going to ask them to complete that collection because these people in Judea are really suffering. And yes, these are Gentiles. Paul's asking to help support Jews, but he just assumes that, that they would be willing to do that. What he's also going to point out, though, by way of example, is that the churches in northern Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, they too are undergoing a famine, and nevertheless, they are willing to give. And in fact, they have already given to the collection Paul is, is trying to complete. They, Paul did not ask them to give. He, he had too much compassion. He knew they hardly had two pennies to rub together. But we're going to see that in spite of that, some of them <clears throat> went to Paul and basically implored Paul, please, let us give something. Take up a collection amongst us. We want to be able to do something for our brothers and sisters in Judea. And Paul says, basically, he was really surprised by that. And yet he wants to use that example, not to manipulate the Corinthians in any way, but just to say, hey, look, your northern countrymen have already given. You guys started to give about a year ago, and for whatever reason, it kind of fell off the calendar. So he's saying, how about getting it all back together, complete this offering, because those people are really destitute over there. So with all that as background, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to try to cover the first 15 verses. At least I'm confident we'll cover the first one. Verse 8, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, in the chair basket in front of you. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, the northern people. Again, he's writing to the southerners. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now that's kind of a mouthful, so we'll, we'll break it down a little bit. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. Because Paul had been there. He saw their living condition. And he says they gave beyond their means, of their own accord. Paul didn't twist their arm. It was their idea to give. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus. Titus was the one who had begun to go and start the collection. Paul is now saying, I'm sending Titus back so that he, with your help, can complete it. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started with the collection, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, diligence, excitement of others that your love 
also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. If you've never memorized a verse, never memorize that verse. Memorize that one. One of the best verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Verse 10, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, that is, completing the collection, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be, bat, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, you just hear Paul encouraging all along. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance, Corinthians, at the present time, should supply their need. That there may be, uh, so that there, yeah, there, start again. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need if that time were to come, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. I want to go through some principles, biblical principles for giving, and we're going to go through some of them slowly and some of them very quickly. First one is that biblical giving originates with God and His grace. Verse 1 talks about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. I didn't see this until I was studying it. He didn't talk about the salvation grace here that's given to the people. He's talking about grace as an opportunity to give. And so he says, this opportunity to give, God gave to the Macedonians. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of giving as, as a gift, the opportunity of giving, giving as being a gift from God, but it is. Right away, the first thing Paul says is, hey, God uh, worked in such a way that he helped people see a need and be willing to meet a need. And I think what he's implying is, God will certainly do the same thing for y'all Corinthians and by application for us as well. So if we don't have a desire to give, let's pray and ask God to give us such a desire. I wish I had time. Um, I was probably about the biggest miser you could ever meet before I became a Christian. One quick story. I went to the grocery store one time with my mom to buy some candy. I really hoped she would pay for it. I really wanted it. She said she wouldn't. Get up. There's time. Candy's on the little conveyor belt. She said, Barry, give it. Drop your money. I couldn't do it. I, I wouldn't. What, whatever. And so she took my hand and pried my fingers open one by one until that candy or money fell that was the best and worst candy I ever ate in my life it still tasted good but boy I was better inside that I had to give up three cents I said it was way back 
<laughs> okay, so again, if you do not have a, a desire to give, and I've been there, and it took God working in my heart over many years to get me to a point where I could freely and give and even desire to give. So if you don't have that desire in your heart, ask God to provide it for you. And you might say, yeah, right. If I pray this, God will answer that prayer for sure. And he'll make me more willing to give. Yeah, right. That's how it should work. That's what he wants for his people. He doesn't want us to be very good and misers. He wants us to be generous givers. Second point, giving should bring us joy. As well, Christian joy should prompt us to give, even when we're in deep poverty. So you see a reciprocation. Giving produces joy. Joy produces giving. And we see that in verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, they were hungry or not having enough food, and they were being persecuted. Nevertheless, these northern Grecians had an abundance of joy, even amongst their extreme poverty, and they kind of worked together somehow to overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. We can have joy in giving. The Corinthians were somewhat experiencing some joy in their wealth. They weren't quite as eager to give at this point. And so again, Paul is using some of these to try to nicely, nicely cajole them to give. To just do what, in fact, they had said they were wanting to do a year ago. Number three, giving. Well, let me read the verse first. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Giving, I say, is always a sacrifice. Sometimes it can be a great sacrifice. And yet the decision to give and the amount we give is our choice. The Macedonians gave up to their means, actually beyond their means, but it was their choice to give. You know, if you have $100 and you give $10 away, how much are you going to have left? Not a trick question. You're going to have $90, right? 90 is less than 100, right? If you give, it is a sacrifice. You're left with less. Don't sugarcoat that. That's just plain math. Sometimes people say, well, God will fill your pocket up later that day. Most likely, no, he won't. Most likely, you're going to have to be better stewards of the $90 you have you certainly don't wait around saying, okay, God, you know, any point now, you can give me that $10 back or, or even 20 or more. No, if we give, we will wind up with less, at least for a certain amount of time. Don't be surprised at that. We don't have time today, but in 2 Corinthians 9, it says that God gives us enough that we can meet our needs and share with others in a normal setting. What that means is if we give some away, then we need to go back and look at how we're spending our money, how we're earning our money. We may need to make some changes in that in order to be able to give. But in general, you know, outside of extreme circumstances, 
you can always give something. Even if it requires you to reshuffle the deck a little bit. So giving is always a sacrifice. And that's okay. It should be. If it wasn't, we, were, we would all be tremendous givers, wouldn't we? <coughs> Again, what Paul is basically saying through this is you can give, you'll wind up with less, but don't expect God to work a miracle to make it all come out well for you, at least not anytime soon. God does not normally work miracles. That's what makes them miracles. They're unusual. Yes, He can always, but He's designed things to work, as I said earlier, through money and people. When we give, we need to expect to have less. We need to expect that it's going to change some things. It's going to be a sacrifice. Nevertheless, point four, giving is a choice. It can and it should be done eagerly. Verse 4 said that the Macedonians were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And I just quote one more verse for you from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How can you be a cheerful giver? Decide an amount. Make sure you're not giving it reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't make somebody have to pry your fingers open, so to speak. <clears throat> One other passage along this same line is in 1 Corinthians 16. And I'll just read a few of the verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, Asia Minor, so you also are to do. Do what? On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that when I come there will be no collecting. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul said the normal way, a good way, a good method of giving is to basically do it ahead of time, to plan it up or set it aside. Now, they didn't meet in church buildings like we do today. They didn't have organized general fund drives or building fund drives. Uh, the church was very early at this point in time. Nevertheless, Paul said, make a plan of some kind and stick with it. Just notice, Paul did not suggest an amount there. The Corinthians were far more wealthy than the Macedonians, but he doesn't say what the Macedonians gave. He simply said, do what you can do and do it without reluctance and without remorse and do so with joy. Fifth, and natural follow-on giving, especially sacrificial giving, will occur naturally as an outflow of our commitment to Christ. Verse 5 says, and, they, and, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You'll see, I think, yes, that I put some words in brackets. The reason for that is this is what's called an elliptical construction or an elliptical sentence where some other words are left out. Because 
looking at verse 5 by itself, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. That puts across an impression that's the exact opposite of what Paul was saying. But we need to add the words. And it goes back to the verb from verse 3, gave. They gave beyond, and they, they did what? And they gave beyond their means. They did this, not as we expected. What Paul did not expect was for them to give and give beyond their means. He did, he was thrilled and certainly expected that they would give themselves first to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. I think what Paul means there is, <clears throat> excuse me, that they said, Paul, we want to give, tell us how. Tell us when, if we can help walk it to them, great, we'll do that as well. So that's uh, an elliptical sentence. Sometimes the Bible has lots of those. Greek uses them a lot. Hebrew uses them a lot. English uses them a lot. Just real quickly, one in English, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's actually baptizing them in the name of the Father and baptizing them in the name of the Son and baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit. Those words were left out. Greek didn't need them. People could supply them on their own. Hebrew, same thing. English, same thing. But that's why we immerse three times, is because that word, although it appears once, it, it has to be repeated for the sentence to make sense. Okay, verse 6 and point 6. Unless we're providentially hindered from doing so, we should follow through on our pledges and commitments. And Paul said that they urged Titus that he should complete among you this act of grace, this act of giving. Sometimes, like maybe in John's case with the pleurisy and the high bills, maybe there's a period of time he can't give, but in general, have a plan, have a commitment between you and God, and see if God doesn't provide. Again, there may be a week, some weeks that you have to give less, but see if in the long run he doesn't provide enough for you to live up to your commitment. Principle 7, giving should be a high priority in life. And he challenged the Corinthians this way, as you excel in everything. And he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. He says, as you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness or eagerness, sincerity, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I don't know if you ever thought about it. I don't know if you ever aspired to it. But it's possible to excel at giving. I didn't say give the most of anyone else. Excelling at giving means doing as the Macedonians did. Fully giving ourselves to the Lord and then to whatever His will may be for us. Number eight, giving demonstrates the genuineness of our love for God and for others. Verse eight here, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness or eagerness of others, by their example, that your love also is genuine. Paul wasn't issuing a command for them to give. He wasn't telling them any amount they had to give. He simply said, 
your northern neighbors have demonstrated their eagerness and their earnestness to give, why don't you? And by doing that, they've demonstrated their love. Love for God, their love for others. Why don't you guys do the same thing? You'll also demonstrate your love for God by giving. Number nine, Jesus is the supreme example of sacrificial giving. I mean, we could make a sermon just on this one verse. That you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, meaning he was in heaven, had no needs, uh, angels waiting for him, worshiping him. It was perfection. Yet, for your sake, he became poor. He left heaven, came to earth in a human body, was ridiculed, spit upon, murdered. God raised him from the dead and eventually ascended him back to heaven. But Jesus didn't do that because it was going to be a fun experience. He did it for one reason, and that was for us, for people. So people could have eternal life, can have the salvation he offers. So Paul had spoken in verse 8 about showing their love. In verse 9, he says, you want to see love? You want to see an example of love? Boy, look at Christ. Number 10. We benefit from fulfilling the financial pledges and promises we make. Paul says to them, and in this matter of, of giving, I give my judgment that this, completing the, the giving process for them, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Again, he reiterates, giving from what you have, not from what you don't have. How would completing the collection benefit them? I think because God rewards our obedience. God often rewards us with joy, with, with contentment. And I think also they could have the assurance that, you know what, we helped a very needy and destitute group of people, but not just people, spiritual brothers and sisters. That is a great benefit that comes to us and comes to you as you give. Point 11, genuine willingness to give is what makes the gift pleasing to God. Willingness to give is what makes the gift pleasing to God, not the amount of the gift itself. So, again, we should give according to what we have. As Paul had said in verse 12, if the readiness is there, the giving, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Point 12, we should help people, especially individuals, with their needs, but not with their greeds. And so don't overburden your family to help others. Again, somebody might be going through dire straits. Their house burns down. Yeah, you might temporarily borrow some money or something to help them. But as a norm, don't borrow to give. Readjust your income or readjust your expenses in order to give. Well, we've said a lot and rushed through a lot. 
But I hope today that if nothing else, I've just helped remind you that God uses people and money. Why does the church need money? Because that's simply how it works. There's, there are some spiritual benefits to giving, spiritual principles to giving, but guys, there's no other way for the church on your behalf to minister to you and to others. Curriculum costs money. Building costs money. Electricity, sound, all those kind of things cost money. Would you bow with me as, and, as we close in prayer? <clears throat> Father, I, we have covered a lot, maybe too much, but I pray that you would help, at least, help each one of us to walk out of here with at least one, um, uh, with a greater assurance that, that we can and should give to you and not out of fear, not out of um, having to, but because it is a privilege to do so, and because you, this is the how you have chosen to work in this life. So God, complete this message in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.